Luke 14. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. This is God's word. It's given to us for our good, for the good of his people. Let us attend to its reading. Let us hear its goodness. Let us find its blessing. And the Lord will bless us as we do so. Luke 14, verse 25. God's holy, inspired, inerrant infallible word. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down, consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Everyone knows what it's like to want to receive credit for the things that you have done. It's the condition of the human heart to desire to be recognized for your work or for your idea, especially if one of those things produces something in the world, something significant in the world. People want the credit and they want to be recognized, but in today's world it's more than that. It's money. Money is a big part of it as well. Intellectual property cases can often carry a cost of tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even uh, upwards of a billion dollars if one tech company sues another tech company or somebody with an idea sues uh, a social media outlet and claims that they have stolen their idea. The Christian life, credit, or the the biblical word glory, is a, a big part of our lives. It's central to all that we think and all that we do. But it's not our glory, it's God's glory that is central to our lives. But the question perhaps remains in a lot of our hearts. In the ongoing lives that we live, that we are called to live as followers of Christ, if we've come to him in faith and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, in our ongoing lives, who gets the glory for the discipline that we show 
for the perseverance that is worked out in us. Who gets the glory? Well, here's the central idea that I'd like to draw out for us today in this passage. Since it is Christ's righteousness being worked out in us, then Christ is the one who is magnified by our continued living in obedience. Since it is Christ's righteousness being worked out in us, by which I mean to say that when we believe the gospel, when we believe the message of salvation that we find in God's word, then God grants to us the perfect obedience and righteousness of Christ. And he looks upon his children as though we have done that very obedience ourselves. So that righteousness is then granted to us and then by the Spirit empowering our living. The Holy Spirit brings out that righteousness more and more in our lives, in our actions, as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So since it is Christ's righteousness being worked out in us, then Christ is the one who is magnified by our continued living in obedience. This passage speaks about a call to discipleship. That Jesus gives, but it's very important to, to work through and understand how we must approach this passage. So we're going to do that by looking at four themes. The first, the commands that Jesus gives. Second, the caution. Third is the comfort. And fourth is the commission or the commission. So the commands, the caution, the comfort, and the commission. Let's look at this call to discipleship together. First, some introductory comments. Last time we looked at the Gospel of Luke, the last passage had to do with Jesus teaching about uh, the great banquet that pictures for us the kingdom of God. And what happened in that passage was there were many people who were invited to this great banquet that a man threw. And the people who were invited were people who had some status in the world you know, they, they had jobs, they had things to attend to, and they all said that they were too busy to come to the banquet. They were distracted by various things, various things in the world. And so, who ends up coming to the banquet are people who are dragged there, carried there, because they cannot get there on their own. The poor, and the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. So Jesus pictures for us what the kingdom of God is. That there will be no one who sits around at this great banquet of the kingdom of God and they will think to themselves, wow, I really deserve to be here. No, they will see that they themselves are the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the ones who have no uh, inherent value in and of themselves, but it's all because of the grace of the one who is hosting the banquet. It talks about our spiritual brokenness, it talks about the lavish love and grace of our God and our Savior. And so Jesus uses that picture, that parable to teach to us. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So with that in mind that we turn to these commands as Jesus turns to the crowds that are following him. Important to keep that in mind too as well that Jesus is speaking this out generally to the crowds. Three distinct commands that Jesus gives to those who would be his followers. The first is this. You are to hate your family. Now, if that sounds odd to you, if that sounds strange, then you've heard me correctly and you're on the right track. God is the creator of the family. He created it for 
our good. And there is perhaps nothing on earth that has more to do with the the goodness that God bestows upon people generally in their earthly lives. Family. Family is created for our good and has so much to do with a person's Development. I came across an article this week, really interesting article, about uh, a young man who is graduating from Yale. And this is a, a young man who was abandoned by multiple families, both into which he was born and adopted. And that didn't make him bitter towards the family. He had to work through a lot of various things. But through that, he saw the importance of the family. And, of course, Jesus would not deny that either. We can go to various places in God's Word and see... Uh, that God affirms for us the goodness, the importance of the family. If you look at uh, passages like this that are in Matthew and Mark, Jesus calls uh, people that would follow him to love him more than they love their own family. And that seems reasonable to us. We say, well, yes, God is to be number one in our lives. He's to be most important. And so it would make sense that we love him more than we love anyone else, even though it's most natural for us to love our family the most. We see them every day. uh, We live with them. We uh, sacrifice a lot for them. But Luke has a a, a phrase, a word that Jesus uses that comes at us a little bit more sharply, doesn't he? He says you are to hate your family. Now, for various reasons, we can't understand this literally, Uh, We could go to a place like Genesis 29, where we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And in the very next verse, it says that Leah was hated. So it's a relative and not an absolute scale that Jesus is calling us to do this. But the nuance that he is bringing out is this. When you love someone more than you love someone else, there will be times when you have to act in accord with that love to the detriment of the party whom you love less. And so if you truly would follow Jesus in this way and you would uh, love him absolutely more than anything or anyone else in your life, there will be times when people closest to you, yes, even your family, may suffer detriment for us. They may, for that, they may suffer loss on account of one's preference to the Lord. And so at the very least, this is a huge command that Jesus is giving to us. The commands only increase in intensity. He says, take up your cross. That's the second command that he gives. Carrying one's cross is an idea that was introduced to us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And through that, Jesus illustrates for us another proverb where he says, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not just a command to carry one's cross, but also a command to follow Jesus. But it's important to understand that that command has first come to us in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a pivotal point of Luke, and of course we understand that Luke was not writing with chapters and verses. So just as he's writing his gospel, that's a pivotal point in, in the gospel account, because that is where Jesus sharpens his focus to go down the road to Jerusalem. It's at that point where he sets his face to Jerusalem and the rest of the gospel takes shape to show that Jesus is going to fulfill the mission that his father has sent him to do. And so Jesus is, in that sense, carrying his cross, going to Jerusalem. He will not be swayed to the right or to the left. But 
at that very time in Luke chapter 9, there are some people who come to Jesus and they want to follow him. So it's right at the point where Jesus' focus really sharpens towards Jerusalem. He has some people come to him and say, I want to follow you. A couple things, a couple of those very examples I want us to consider. The first is this. One man comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. Now this is something that would have been hugely important in that culture. Hugely important in our culture for people to grieve properly, to pay their respects. Do you remember what Jesus says to that man? He says, no, you can't go and bury your father. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. It seems to me that that is particularly what Jesus is saying in our passage here today when in Luke it comes to us as the command to hate your family. There will be times when you do things in preference to your Lord that make it seem as though you prefer him much more than your family. And someone might look at that and say, man, uh, that person followed Jesus instead of going to bury his father. He must really hate his family. That's an intense call by Jesus. Another person comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 9, says, Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. Let me go say goodbye to my family. Do you remember what Jesus says there? He says, uh, anyone who puts their hands to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying there's no time for that. You have to just follow me. Don't go say goodbye to your family. You can imagine, it's a strange thing to hear, especially if it's only going to take you a few minutes to go and say goodbye to your family. There's a very important Old Testament connection with that last occurrence. The man who says, Jesus, let me go say goodbye to my family. Connected to 1 Kings chapter 19, where the prophet Elijah calls the prophet, uh, or soon to be prophet Elisha, says, come and follow me. And Elisha says to Elijah, uh, first let me go give my family a goodbye kiss. Go, let me go kiss my father and my mother goodbye. And Elijah says, of course you may do that. Of course, go ahead. So he goes, he goes to say goodbye to his family. He comes back quickly to return to his new uh, teacher and master. And so Luke is clearly alluding to that passage in order to draw out for us the radical nature of the call of Jesus here in this passage. The radical nature of the call of Jesus. Not just the most important followers of Jesus, not only Peter and James and John, but all those who would be followers of Jesus have this call placed upon them that is more radical than the one that Elijah gave to Elisha. The last command that Jesus gives to his would-be followers, he says, give up everything. Give up everything, your worldly possessions, your earthly blessings. He says that in verse 33, in the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Give up everything. Leave it behind. It carries that idea. Leave it behind. Strain towards something you see as inherently more valuable, more worth your efforts. Leave it all behind. A common theme in Luke has been addressing or confronting for us the, the, how easy it is for us to fall into a mentality where we don't even realize how much we're idolizing the things of this world, our jobs, our possessions, our houses, our relationships, our spouses, our kids. All of these can come, become idols of the heart and they replace the position of lordship that God is to occupy. Consider what we read this morning for our reading of the law. The rich young ruler, 
the rich young man in other Gospels. This man comes to Jesus. He says, how will I inherit eternal life? Which is a fundamental question. Hugely important question. What does Jesus say to him? He asks him how he's doing on the commandments. How do you keep the commandments? Tell me how you keep the law. The man says, I, I keep them fairly well as far as I know. I've, I've kept all of these commandments from my youth. But Jesus goes beneath the surface to this man's heart. And it's so important for us to hear this this morning relative to the call of Jesus of discipleship, relative to this story with the rich young ruler. If you would be justified by your obedience, Jesus tells him exactly what it will take. Sell every last thing you have. Give it to the poor. It's fascinating to me that the rich young man walks away distraught because it seems as though he believes Jesus has the authority to grant him eternal life. He says, yeah, this man has the authority to tell me what I, what I am to do. So Jesus tells him, sell every last thing you have. Give it all to the poor. And rather than doing that, the man walks away sad. He walks away distraught. Why? It says, because he has much wealth. See, in his mind, it was too much. It was too much to sell. It was too much to give away. So it's there that Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But then Peter says something. We didn't read that this morning. But right after that, in Luke 18, Peter says something to Jesus. Hugely important for us to see and notice and recognize as we work through this call of discipleship that Jesus gives. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, we have left our homes and we have followed you. So in saying that, what is it that Peter's saying? He's looking at the command that Jesus has given to the rich young ruler. This command to to give away everything that you have and then go and follow Jesus. And Peter thinks that he has made good on that call of Christ. Peter's saying, Jesus, I have left everything for you. I truly am your disciple. Come back to our text today in Luke. When is Jesus saying this and to whom is he saying it? Well, again, he's saying it when he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's saying it when he is on his way to show just how man is going to be reconciled to God. He's saying it when he is on his way to the cross which the Father has sent him to complete that work and he has left heaven's glory to make a way for our salvation. He is the one who is going to finish that work. And then, who is he saying all these things to? He's saying it to the crowds. He's not saying it to his disciples. He's saying it to people who may, be, may want to be his followers, who may not want to be his followers, people who may be there just for the show, people who may be there just because following Jesus has become a bit of a spectacle. But with these three commands, Jesus could not be setting the bar any higher. Ignore the ones you love most. Give up all the possessions you have. Give up your very life, Jesus says. Then go, take up your cross, die a ruthless death, he says. If you're going to do all of that, Jesus says by way of uh, caution, count the cost. So the commands and then the caution. The The caution is count the cost. He does this with a few parables, doesn't he? 
One is with a man who sets out to build a tower, and before he goes to build a tower, he has to take stock of all that he has. And the question is, does he have enough resources to complete the project? The famous celebrity in uh, the early mid-90s was highly successful for a number of years and then wanted to build the most lavish home in all of Southern California, which is a tough thing to do when there's so many millionaires, so many celebrities, and so he had to build one from scratch. It was costing him about $30 million. wasn't good enough to have one swimming pool, had to have multiple swimming pools. wasn't good enough to have a gate at the end of the driveway, needed to have uh, gates that were plated with gold. And so he finishes this project, goes bankrupt, runs out of money, has to sell the home for about a sixth of what it cost him to build the home. In the early to mid-90s, people still talk about that. See, it was, uh, he was enormously shamed, embarrassed because of what he had failed to do. He had become, uh, in many ways, a laughingstock. The other example is one not of financial danger, but mortal danger. A king will only go into battle if he believes he honestly has a chance of winning. So how do we understand the command of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, and the caution? Many people say, come to this passage and they say, okay, here's what Jesus is doing. He's reminding us that even though salvation is by grace, we really need to count the cost of following Christ. So it comes down to whether or not we think that we have the resources to get it done. Do we have what it takes? Do we have the devotion to carry it out? Do we have the love for Christ to follow him to the very end? Now, I believe that in this passage we see a radical call to follow Christ to those who would follow him. But it's very important that we understand the proper way to get to that call. And it's very important that we understand it in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I believe for several reasons that it's very unhelpful to come at this passage and think that ultimately Jesus is saying, here are the commands, take stock of all that you have before you decide whether or not you have what it takes to follow me. Think about the Gospel of Luke. What are the main themes that have been coming out again and again and again in the Gospel of Luke? The first theme, I think, is this is who are the kinds of people Jesus is saving? Who are the kinds of people to whom Jesus is ministering? They're the kinds of people who have leprosy and have been cast out. They're on the fringes of society. Jesus goes to them on the edges of the village and he places his hands on them and he heals them. Remember the woman who was a a woman of the city caught up in various patterns of sin and she comes to Jesus and she anoints him. And Jesus accepts the worship that she brings. We think of the parable of the banquet. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. For all these reasons we see Jesus has been coming to do what? To seek and to save the lost. So that's one theme. The second theme is this. The necessity of repentance. The necessity of repentance. Jesus has been highlighting this for us again and again and again. And where does repentance begin? Repentance begins with the contrite heart. Repentance begins with the recognition that there is nothing that I'm bringing to God that I can bring forth and show Him as my righteousness. The Gospel of Luke 
is a condemnation of self-righteousness. Jesus, again and again and again, confronting the religious leaders who think that they are propping up their own righteousness before God. No, God gives mercy to those who feel the opposite of the religious leaders of the day. He condemns self-righteousness. He blesses those who come to him desperate for mercy, desperate for pardon of sin. So as Jesus saying, count the cost of the heavy burden that I'll place upon you. It seems to be opposite things that we find elsewhere. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is he warning us that you may be the humiliated architect or the defeated king? Is he saying you may start out as salt and then lose your saltiness and not persevere? Be thrown out into utter darkness? The problem, as I was considering this, is that if you go to the book of Acts, which is a a book that Luke wrote, of course, the building of the church, you never hear the gospel preached in this kind of way. It's never, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Repent and believe in Him. In fact, you have no, no option but to believe in Him. But, before you do, count the cost. Because Jesus places this great and heavy burden upon you in his call to follow him. So you'd better count the cost first. So how do we make sense of what Jesus says here? Consider the end of the passage. The last phrase, what does Jesus say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The last time that phrase occurred in the Gospel of Luke was in the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is a parable that shows for us the mystery of the kingdom, of obviously in a parable form. So it's going to be something that takes faith and discernment to understand. It's going to be something that those who do not have faith are not going to be able to understand. And so in this passage, Jesus is teaching us about the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom. And there are two things that I'd like to show us about the mystery of the kingdom that Jesus is showing us this morning. The first part of the mystery of the kingdom is this. It's the exaltation of the work of Christ. And the second is this, is that our lives, as they are transformed by grace, our lives become monuments to the glory of Christ and testaments to the joy of Christ. Think about these commands of Jesus in the context of Luke itself. Jesus says, here's what you must do if you will follow me. And people like Peter are thinking, I think I can do that. I think I can follow through on all of those commands. Who follows Jesus all the way to the end? Who follows him to the end of the road? Who will follow through on giving up everything and follows Jesus to the detriment of their family, then dies alongside of him as a heretic and a blasphemer in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. Who will do that in the context of Luke? No one. No one will. By the end of the road, every single person will have abandoned the way of holiness. They will not be following our Lord. See, in the end, even his closest followers run away. Even Peter desires to save his own life. But Jesus says, whoever saves his own life will lose it. But in the end, everyone will step and abandon the way of holiness. Except, of course, our Lord himself. And that brings us to the comfort 
the command, the caution, the comfort. Christ is the comfort. Because it is his work and not ours that reconciles us to God. It is his work, not ours, that makes us disciples and followers of him. Jesus is the one who left his earthly family to minister to those in need. His family had to suffer loss so that Jesus could go and finish the mission. Jesus is the one who carried his cross, who set his face to the mission that his father gave him, and did not turn to the right, to the left. Jesus was the one who gave up more than any of us could ever imagine, who gave up heavenly glory and bliss, things in the face of which earthly gold and earthly glory melts. He gave up heavenly glory and bliss. All things, all three commands with which Jesus gives, he kept to the letter each and every moment and never abandoned the way of holiness, never abandoned the mission. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what's under the surface of what Jesus is saying? We all need to understand, we all need to admit that we do not have the resources to pull this off in and of our own strength. We become like the king who realizes that he's outnumbered and he's outflanked. And, and that is what happens when you see the righteousness of God, when you see the demands of what it would take to earn a place in the kingdom of God. We become like the king who pictures for us repentance when he realizes he's not going to win the battle. And so what does he do? He sends a delegation in front of him to beg for terms of peace. Jesus shows us the demands. He shows us the kind of obedience that he demands of us. But he goes down that road alone. And though that sounds like bad news, though that sounds like there's, there, there's no one that can be followers of Jesus, it's actually good news. Because we, can't, we become like this king. We send a plea for mercy on ahead of us so that when we face the king of kings, we might be found in him. You see, it is Christ's work that forms the foundation of our following Jesus that assures us that all those conditions that needed to be kept, Christ has kept them for us. That is our comfort. That is the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Repent and you will be granted the perfect obedience of the Son of God. You will, you will be granted the perfect work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when the Father looks at you, he will see that perfect righteousness given to you by grace and through faith. And so that brings us then to the, to the opportunity that we have to look at all these things that Jesus has said. The call of discipleship and to understand it through the lens of the gospel. And to realize the commission, the commission to which Jesus calls us in the way that we can understand the devotion that we are to have to Christ. See, there is a radical devotion that we need to have to our Lord. There is a radical love that we need to have to Christ. He is to be, number one, on the throne of our hearts. But we need to understand that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light in and through the gospel. 
And so the second mystery of the kingdom is this. As we understand these calls through the lens of the work of Christ, through the lens of the gospel, there are two things that I'd like to draw out about uh, how this second part of the mystery of the kingdom comes to be in our own lives. I've said that it is that we are monuments to the glory of Christ and we are testaments to the joy of Christ. And so, two things as we close. The first is that for lives transformed by the gospel of Christ, you will see a spirit-empowered, Christ-magnifying, living in obedience. A spirit-empowered, Christ-magnifying, living in obedience. This is the commission of the gospel call. This is what comes to us after we realize the comfort of Christ. That ultimately, none of us are going to be able to keep these commands of discipleship on our own. And our obedience, our efforts are going to pale in comparison. So the Apostle Paul comes to this, and what does he say? He says, I am a man who could have been, uh, who who perhaps could have claimed self-righteousness next to anyone else on earth, the Hebrew of Hebrews. But what does he say? It's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. Because as he was granted the perfect righteousness of Christ, and as he's granted the Holy Spirit who comes and makes a home in his life and in his heart, the Spirit brings out Christ's righteousness in his body so that he says, it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he can say to live. Is Christ. And so that means that anything he would prop up is for naught. It's nothing of his own righteousness because anything good that he does, he does by the grace of God, he does by the righteousness of Christ dwelling in him by the power of the Spirit. He says this in Philippians chapter 1. His prayer is the Philipp- for the Philippians is that God would uh, grant them the fruit of righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. He says it in Ephesians 6 verse 1. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The Christian life cannot be lived in and of your own strength. Paul reiterates it twice in that verse, doesn't he? Be strong in the Lord. Don't be strong in yourself. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Spirit-empowered, Christ-magnifying living happens when we understand the call to devotion through the lens of the gospel that Christ's obedience, his keeping all of these commands, has already been done for us. And then finally, there is an all-satisfying joy that comes with, with being in intimate fellowship with the God who made us. Think of Psalm 63. God's steadfast love is better than life. As this righteousness is worked out in us, as this radical devotion is worked out in us because of what Christ has done, because of what has been given to us by grace through faith, then we find more and more that we are experiencing the joy that comes in being in intimate fellowship with the God who made us so that Christ becomes better than what we have in this life. And so that Christ becomes better than what we lose in death. That radical call that Jesus calls us to and calls his would-be followers to, that call that we realize in and of ourselves we can't do it. 
when we understand it through the lens of Christ, through the joy that comes in the spirit-empowered living to the glory of Christ, because to live is Christ and to die is gain, because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As he brings us to greater and greater joy, we can say, let goods, let kindred go. Because Christ is better than what we have in this life. He's better than what we lose in death. The only one who can hold your hand through the valley of death, who can bring you to the eternal gates of glory, is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. He is better than what we have in life. He's better than what we lose in death. And so he becomes our greatest joy. The joy of knowing this God intimately, being in fellowship with the one who has made us. And so a spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting living, when we come at the call to radical devotion through the lens of the gospel, spirit-empowered, Christ-magnifying living, and then finally, uh, knowing the all-satisfying joy of being in intimate fellowship with the God who made us. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all. Reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. So, Father, plant these words deeply in our hearts. Bring out, by your Spirit, in our lives, the glory of Christ, that he would be magnified in our ongoing living in obedience. Help us to remember the command, the caution, the comfort, the commission, to always remember to look at things through the lens of Christ, the lens of grace, for he alone is our rock, and our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And stand together and sing, O oh, Great God. It's on the back side of... Uh...